Good morning. The scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 11, verse 27 to 12, 9. And you can find that on page 8 in your pew Bibles. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah and the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans, and Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your, father's, from your country to your and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray, indeed I plead, that you would give us grace to understand the word. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your law. And we pray along with those in the Gospel of John, Lord, we wish to see Jesus. Please give us eyes to see him, ears to hear him, by the Spirit anointing the preaching of the word of Christ today, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. After a little more than a month, we're jumping back into Genesis today, and I want to remind you where we've been in the book up till now. So we've seen from Genesis 1 and 2, God create the heavens and the earth by his word and by his spirit. The pinnacle of that creation is the creation of the only creature that's made in the image of God, mankind, male and female, Adam and Eve. The scriptures tell us that God made Adam and Eve without sin and placed them in a garden paradise called Eden. And God commanded them to eat freely from every tree in the garden, but not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God warned them that on the day they ate fruit from that forbidden tree, they would die. Satan the devil tempted Adam and Eve to sin against God in Genesis chapter 3, and they did. 
and what God said would happen to them if they sinned against him happened. They died spiritually, evidenced by their hiding from God and being ashamed toward God and being ashamed toward each other. And they were cursed along with all of creation, including the serpent that the devil had taken the form of in his temptation of Adam and Eve. Beginning in chapter 4 of Genesis, we see all the nasty effects of the curse of sin begin to be played out. Adam and Eve's firstborn son, Cain, murders his brother, Abel. Genesis 5 reads like a cemetery. God said, on the day you eat of that, you will surely die. And in Genesis 5, we read, and he died, and he died, and he died. But the deadly, dark Genesis 5 ends with a ray of hopeful light. Because one is born whose name means relief or rest, Noah. And in Genesis 6, we see that Noah finding favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord amid a generation for whom it was said every intention of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. And so because of the rampant wickedness of all mankind, God undoes creation. The world which was covered with water before the Lord formed and filled the world by his word and his spirit now again becomes covered with water. And all mankind dies, as does every animal and every bird. Everything dies except for Noah and his wife and their three sons and their sons' wives who are spared by God's grace in the ark that Lord, the Lord commanded Noah to build. And after Noah and his family come off the ark to a kind of new creation, they begin to repopulate the planet Entire nations and civilizations come from them. Genesis chapter 10 shows us. And then by the beginning of chapter 11, some of these people who've descended from Noah and his sons, they hatch a plan to make for themselves a great name for themselves by the work of their hands. And so they decide to build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And if you wonder how successful they were, Genesis 11.5 says the Lord has to come down to see their city and their tower. And the Lord judges them for their rebellion and their pride. He confuses their language. He disperses them throughout all the earth. But every time it looks like sin and darkness and ruin will have the last word, God shows himself to be the Savior. Even as the Lord pronounces judgment and curse following Adam and Eve's sin in Genesis 3, even in the context of that curse, he promises that the seed of the woman is going to come and bruise the serpent's head. Even as the Lord announces that all of creation is going to be judged and ruined and undone because of sin, he spares Noah, Mr. Rest, and his family. And even when the whole of humanity looks poised to live in prideful, stubborn rebellion against their creator at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Before that chapter ends, we're introduced to a man named Terah and to Terah's sons, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Today, we're really starting Genesis part two. There's a real sense in which the rest of Genesis starts with our text today. 
And up till now, we've been looking at the world with a wide-angle lens. We've been looking at the whole of creation. We've been looking at the whole of the world's destruction in the flood. And we've been looking from whom the whole planet gets repopulated. But today, Moses is going to begin to zoom in on one man. And that man is Abram. And it's with Abram and his family that Moses is exclusively concerned from here throughout the entire rest of Genesis. Now in our text today, we're going to see the Lord make some promises to this one man, Abram. And as we go through our text today, here's what I want you to be listening for the answer to. Here's what I want you to be asking and looking to the text to answer. Why is it that you should care? Why is it that you should care about some promises that were made 4,000 years ago to someone you've never met while he was dwelling in a land most of you have never been in? Why should you care about that? What do these promises have to do with you? That's the question that God is going to answer in his word for us today. Now, as I say, the promises that are our focus today, they're made to Abram. And with your Bibles open to the text that we heard read earlier, Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, we see Abram introduced. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. You'll recall that this isn't the first time we've seen that construction in Genesis, is it? These are the generations of. Moses does that writing this book as he does under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit to direct our attention to the family lines that we need to be focused on as it's revealed to us who it is that's going to be the seed of the woman who's promised in Genesis 3.15. Where is the seed of the woman going to come from? The one who will undo the curse on creation because of sin. The one who's going to crush the serpent's head. The rest of the book of Genesis focuses on characters that descend from Terah, as I've said, and specifically from Terah's son, Abram. So Moses is telling us, this is the family line that we need to be locked in on in our desperate search and longing for that serpent-crushing seed. We're told a few important things in these verses, chapter 11, verses 27 through 32. We're told that the land of Terah's kindred The land in which Terah and his sons lived is Ur of the Chaldeans. The people who lived in Ur of the Chaldeans were not worshipers of the Lord. That included Terah and his sons. Joshua reminded the Israelites of this in Joshua chapter 24. Joshua says there, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Terah and his sons, including Abram, were idolaters when they were in Ur of the Chaldeans. We learned something else in these verses. We learned that Terah's son Haran had a son named Lot. Then Haran died. And Terah's other sons, Abram and Nahor, they took wives. Nahor married Milcah. Abram married Sarai. And we're told that Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now, if you didn't know the rest of the story, you'd conclude 
that the line that we're looking for isn't going to come from Abram and Sarai. How could it? They couldn't have any children. You, you can't have seed or offspring without children. That's what children are. Children are offspring. But as we've already seen from Genesis up till now, it turns out that God can do a lot with nothing. And so for reasons that the Bible doesn't give us, Terah decides that he and his family are going to leave Ur of the Chaldeans. They're going to go to Canaan. But Terah doesn't make it all the way to Canaan. He and the rest of his clan with him settle at Haran, a city that's on the modern-day border of Turkey and Syria. Don't be confused into thinking this is a city that Terah has named for his son. The city of Haran was already established when Terah and his family arrive. And then chapter 11 ends with Terah's death. He's not going to be a central figure in the ongoing story. His son Abram, though, will be, as we see beginning in chapter 12. Look with me there at chapter 12 and verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, gives to Abram a command. Go from your country, go from your kindred, go from your father's house to the land I will show you. Another way of understanding what the Lord is commanding of Abram here. Go from where you know, go from who you know, to where you don't know and to whom you don't know. Trust me to lead you. That's what the Lord is commanding Abram. And the land that the Lord's going to show Abram, we know from verse 7, is Canaan. The modern-day nation of Israel occupies a portion of what the Bible called Canaan. The Old Testament's going to go on to call that area the promised land. But after the Lord commands Abram to leave his kindred and his father's house to go to the land that the Lord would show him, the Lord, beginning in verse 2, makes a number of promises to Abram. The first promise is that the Lord will make of Abram a great nation. I will make of you a great nation. Now, if we've been paying attention, that's really an arresting, astonishing kind of promise. A great nation from a man who doesn't even have one child and whose wife is barren? But that's what God promises. I will make of you a great nation. And this promise of making of Abram a great nation doesn't only refer to the fact that God is going to cause many people to descend from Abram, though God is going to do that. Untold millions are going to physically descend from Abram. But for God to say that he's going to make of Abram a great nation is also for the Lord to say that he's going to cause Abram to be the head, the source of, of organized civilizations. Indeed, the Lord is going to cause Abram to be a kingdom. He's going to cause to come from him a kingdom. The Lord tells Abram, in chapter 17, verse 6, I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. What a statement. I'm going to make of you a great nation, a great kingdom. You, childless men with a barren wife, you who have no land, you who now have no clan of your own, I will make of you a great nation. What a promise. The Lord's promises continue in verse 12. I will bless you, he says, and I'll make your name great. Certainly, materially, the Lord makes good on his promise to bless Abram. 
Abram and all those who come after him, we're going to see as Genesis goes on, become the owners of enormous material possessions, livestock, slaves. But the Lord promises not only to bless Abram, but to make his name great. And the Lord delivers on that promise in manifold ways. As we're going to see as Genesis goes on, Abram grows in renown because of military victory, because of possessions. But what really makes Abram's name great are all the people that are going to be able to trace their lineage back to him. In the biological sense, we're going to see as Genesis goes on how Abram's eventual sons and their sons and so on and so forth proliferate this area of the world. And so this promise of a great name for Abram by the Lord's doing is really an interesting promise on the heels of Genesis chapter 11, isn't it? Do you remember what the people who gathered at Babel said was their motivation? Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let us make a name for ourselves. And the Lord came down and brought their efforts to nothing. Here, though, the Lord shows that he's capable by his grace and by his unsearchable purposes to truly make a man's name great. Doesn't the Lord make of Abram a great name? Everything about how the rest of the whole Bible unfolds from here on out pivots off these promises that the Lord is making right here to this man, Abram. And verse 2 ends with the Lord saying that he's going to do these things for Abram so that Abram will be a blessing. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. That statement lets us know that the Lord's blessing of Abram is for the purpose of blessing others. Abram and those who will descend from him are going to be a conduit, a a source of the Lord's blessing to others. That's the Lord's design. The promises continue in verse 3. The Lord promises that whoever blesses Abram is going to be blessed. Whoever dishonors Abram will be cursed. Bless Abram, bless his seed, you'll be blessed by God. Dishonor Abram, dishonor his seed. You'll be cursed by God. That draws some lines in the sand, doesn't it? And it harkens back to Genesis 3.15 where the Lord tells Satan that he's going to put enmity between the seed of the woman and between the serpent's seed. The seed of the woman's going to have his heel bruised by the serpent, but the seed of the woman is going to bruise, crush, wound the serpent's head. And so the seed of the woman, we've been seeing that line receives the Lord's blessing, but the seed of the serpent, that line receives the Lord's cursing. So Genesis 12, 3 helps us here to see who's who. Those who bless Abraham and his seed are going to be blessed by the Lord. To side with Abraham is to side with the Lord. It's to be in the line of the woman's seed. And to dishonor Abram is to be cursed by the Lord. It's to be in the line of the serpent's seed. And then finally, what a promise at the end of verse 3. And in you, and in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not only is the Lord going to make of this man a great nation, 
and give him a great name. But the Lord is going to bless all the families of the earth in him. Now, up till now in Genesis, there's been a lot of talk of curses, haven't there? The serpent is cursed. The ground is cursed, both in chapter 3. In chapter 4, Cain is cursed. Chapter 5, Lamech names his son Noah, rest, relief, because Lamech hopes this son is going to bring rest from the ground that the Lord has cursed. And then in chapter 9, verse 25, the Lord curses Canaan, the son of Noah's son, Ham. That Hebrew word translated curse appears five times in Genesis 1 to 11. And now, look, here in Genesis 12, 2 and 3, the Hebrew word translated bless likewise appears five times. I think that's noteworthy. I think Moses means for us to see that Abram and his seed is the means by which the Lord is going to redeem the cursed creation and cursed humanity. As soon as Adam and Eve sin in Genesis chapter 3, God's on the scene announcing in chapter 3 and verse 15 that he's embarking on a rescue mission for his glory to establish his worldwide kingdom and to install his king over that kingdom. And what Adam failed to do, God is announcing that he's going to do through Abram. He's going to restore the creation that sin ruined. And the Lord is announcing with all of these promises and all of these blessings that Abram and those who come from him are going to play a central role in seeing this curse on creation overturned into blessing. What a gift of God's mercy to show this kindness to all the families of the earth through this wandering, childless, former idolater like Abram. Now, when someone makes a promise to you, as I see it, I think you really only have two options. You can believe it or not. And Abram's response In verses 4 through 9, Abram's response to these promises revealed that he took the Lord at his word. Abram believed the Lord and believed his promises. And that belief is first seen in Abram obeying the Lord's command to go to Canaan. Do you remember back in chapter 12, verse 1? Now the Lord said to Abram, go, verse 4, so Abram went. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. So Abram, his nephew Lot, His wife, Sarai, all their stuff, all their slaves, everything they had accumulated while in Haran, they head south into Canaan. And the first place that the Bible records their stopping is in Shechem, about 40 miles north of the eventual site of Jerusalem. If you've read your Old Testament, you might, the name Shechem might ring a bell for you. That's where the covenant renewal ceremony that we saw in Joshua 24 when we preached through Joshua a few months back, that happens at Shechem. It's where Joseph, the book of Genesis is going to end focused on, Joseph is buried at Shechem. Solomon's foolish son Rehoboam was crowned king of Israel at Shechem. And Moses tells us here in verse 6 that the Canaanites were in the land. So Abram isn't yet going to control this land. But the Lord tells Abram in verse 7, to your offspring, I will give this land to your offspring, Abram. Offspring that as yet 
doesn't exist, to your offspring I will give this land. We saw the Lord fulfill that promise in an initial sense, didn't we, in the book of Joshua. Do you remember how many times we were tying what was going on in Joshua to promises that God made to Abram, later Abraham, in the book of Genesis? But even in a fuller sense, God fulfilled this promise in an initial way during the reigns of David and Solomon when indeed the whole of the promised land, the whole of Canaan, came under Israelite control. And what we see in verse 7 here really ties together all of the promises from chapter 12 because here we have a promise that involves offspring. To your offspring, God says, I will give this land. Again, a stunning promise to a man who's both childless. We've just been told in verse 4 now he's 75 years old and childless. It comes together, these promises of both offspring and land. To your offspring, I'll give this land. Again, I just want you to stop and consider the unfathomable nature of this promise to a wandering, childless man who's been told to leave behind his land. He's promised offspring and land. Now, how does Abram respond to the Lord's promises? I already showed you that he responds with obedience. In verse 4, Abram went, but he also responds with worship. He worships the Lord. Verse 7, he builds an altar to the Lord. In this time before the building of the tabernacle, where regular worship of the Lord came to be located, uh, a common way to worship the Lord was in the building of an altar. And so Abram's worship of the Lord after these promises reveals to us that Abram is trusting the Lord for these promises. Abram believes the Lord. So after building an altar in Shechem, to worship the Lord for these marvelous promises. Abram continues to travel south between Bethel and Ai, where he once again worships the Lord with the building of another altar, calls upon the name of the Lord. That's what, they, that's what a person does when he has faith in the Lord. And then our text today ends with Abram traveling further southward into the Negev, a southernmost region of Israel that borders the Sinai Peninsula, and next week, Lord willing, we'll find Abram and Sarai heading to Egypt. Now, I think Moses, again, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is a, a marvelous storyteller. This story and these promises, in my mind, stand alone as fascinating narrative. But are they more than that? Is there more to Genesis 11, 27 through 12, 9, than mere fascinating narrative to the modern reader. If there are no more than that, then you'd be right to ask how it is that these promises apply to you. Remember, that's the question that I want you to have on your mind. Well, I want to say to you that there's much more to these promises than mere fascinating narrative. And the New Testament helps us see what that much more is. And the main thing that the New Testament helps us to see as it sheds light on the text we've just examined is that these promises that the Lord makes to Abram pertain ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just stop here and say that all throughout this sermon so far and in your sermon outline, I've been talking about these promises 
as promises, plural. And the Lord does give to Abram more than one promise. But not really. These promises aren't piecemeal, as though one or more of them could come to pass, but others might not. No, they all hang together. If one promise fails, they all will fail. And if the Lord is faithful to any of these promises, He's going to be faithful to all of them. And we're going to get a clearer sense of how these promises are really part of one promise when we get to Genesis 15 later this month, Lord willing, and we see the Lord cut a covenant with Abraham, cleverly titled the Abrahamic Covenant. And all these promises are going to get enshrined in that one covenant promise that the Lord makes with Abram that we're going to see in future sermons. But as I was saying, the New Testament tells us that the promises we've considered today all resolve in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what faithful Jews believed at the time of Jesus' birth. In Luke chapter 1, verses 54 and 55, maybe you know that in that section of Luke's gospel, Jesus' mother Mary is offering her song of thanks and praise to the Lord after the angel Gabriel tells her that she's going to have a baby named Jesus, who's going to be the son of the Most High who's going to rule forever from the throne of his father David. And what does Mary say in her song of praise? She sings in verses 54 and 55 of Luke 1, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary is telling us that she knows that the salvation her son will bring is a salvation that is in remembrance of the merciful covenant that God spoke to Abraham concerning Abraham and his offspring, an everlasting covenant. Mary knows that the birth of her son is in fulfillment of these promises. Later in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, offers praise. In his song, he blesses the Lord God of Israel because the Lord is showing in the birth of his son John and in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father, Abraham. Do you hear the connection? Mary and Zechariah are given by the Holy Spirit the understanding that the coming of the Messiah, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, is in fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abraham, the promises that we're considering today. But just because Mary and Zechariah see how Genesis 12 is connected to Jesus, that might still not close the loop for you and help you see the connection between God's promises to Abraham and the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, to Christ's people, the church. So to see that, go with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. That's in the New Testament. A couple of big books, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, are just before it. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And once you've turned there, just stay there for a little while. Follow along with me as I read beginning at verse 14. I'm picking up in the middle of an idea, but we're going to come back to that. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham 
What have we been seeing God say to Abraham? I'll bless you. I'll bless you this way. I'll bless you that way. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit, the Holy Spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, right? Chapter 12, verse 7, to your offspring, I will give this land. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, Paul says, but referring to one, and to your offspring. And who is that offspring? Paul says, to your offspring, who is Christ? The apostle Paul writes the letter that comes to us as the book of Galatians. And he says plainly in chapter 3 and verse 16 that the promises we saw today were made to Abraham and to his offspring or Abraham's seed. And just so we don't miss the point, Paul tells us the promises were not made to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. And who is that offspring? It's Christ. What's Paul saying? He's saying that the one to whom God ultimately made the promises that we've seen today in Genesis 12, the one to whom God ultimately made those promises isn't Abraham, but it's the one that the New Testament calls in its opening verse, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. These promises in Genesis 12 from God ultimately to Jesus. That's what the New Testament says. Now, does that mean there's no sense in which these promises were made to Abraham and those who physically descended from him? No, that's not what it means. God did make of Abraham a great nation. By the time of the Exodus, the Israelites who physically descended from Abraham, they numbered in the millions. Something like 3.8 billion people around the world today, refer to Abraham as Father Abraham. Indeed, kings and entire kingdoms came from Abraham. And for a time, for a time, that land that the Lord promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, 7, Canaan, was indeed under the control of the physical offspring of Abraham, the nation of Israel. So yes, there is a, an initial sense in which these promises in Genesis 12 apply to Abraham. But I want you to see that these promises find their greater and their ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just think through them together. Has the Lord kept his promise to give the Lord Jesus a great nation? Oh my goodness. The sun doesn't set on those who've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a number no man can number, Revelation says. And it's a nation that consists entirely. It's not just a kingdom, it's a kingdom of kings. First Peter 1 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. God is made of his son, the son of Abraham, a great nation that's going to one day rule over the whole universe as vice regents with the Lord Jesus Christ. God has kept his promise to his son to make of him a great nation. Has the Lord kept his promise to make his son's name great? 
He's bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. A name that one day is going to make every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth bow the knee and confess with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Has the Lord kept his promise to bless those who bless his son and curse those who dishonor him? He's begun to keep that promise. All those who right now are in hell and who await the Lord Jesus' return when he's going to resurrect them and cast them into the lake of fire, they are there because they suffer the eternal curse of not having honored God's Son. They've dishonored him by not having faith in him, by not trusting in him alone for salvation, by not worshiping him as Savior and King and Lord and God. And I want to stop here and ask, you who are outside of Christ today, you who arrive here as unbelievers, do you hear what I'm saying? God will eternally curse those who dishonor his son. God promised to Abram, whoever dishonors you, I will curse. We see that in some initial sense, but in a fuller sense, we see it in the Treatment of unbelievers toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, God cursed those who dishonored Abraham and his descendants, the nation of Israel. One example of that is Babylon. They conquered, they exiled Abraham's children by physical descent. And what did God do? God sent the Persians to judge Babylon and to destroy them. But you who have not believed in Christ, you've dishonored Christ, the son of Abraham, by rebelling against him, by not submitting to him by not forsaking your sin and coming to him for salvation, and you will suffer an eternal cursing. And it will be just. The punishment will fit the crime. David writes in Psalm 2, Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. I call on you who are unbelieving. Yes, kiss the Son. Pay homage to God's Son, Jesus. Trust in him. Run to him for the forgiveness of your sins. Run to him for the ransom you need from your slavery to sin. Run to him for the redemption that you need from death and hell and the grave. Do not dishonor him or you will be cursed forever. Bless him by forsaking your sin and believing on him. Bless him and be blessed by God with life and joy and peace forever with Jesus and his people in paradise. Has the Lord kept his promise to Bless all the families of the earth in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, that promise is ultimately made to Christ. Well, he's begun to. I think about how in this room, Gentiles, non-Jews, those who have not physically descended from Abraham, we're counted among Abraham's true seed because of faith in the son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 4 that Abraham is the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That is, all who've trusted in Christ to justify them apart from works of the law. 
Paul goes on to say in Romans 4 that Abraham is the father of those who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And the faith that our father Abraham had was faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, yes, in Jesus, all the families of the earth have been blessed because the Lord Jesus was slain, Revelation 5 says. And by his blood, he has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and he's made them a kingdom and priests to our God. All the families of the earth have been blessed in Abraham's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile. Has the Lord kept his promise to give to Abraham's seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, land? He will. And not just a postage stamp sized plot of land in the desert, but an entire redeemed, restored cosmos. Jesus both shall and does reign where'er the sun doth its successive journeys run. Jesus is going to reign not only over Canaan, but over all creation. And on that day, we will say with the hosts of heaven, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And this is all good news for you, my brothers and sisters. This is all very good news for you, because in Christ... You enjoy the blessings of these promises too. I wanted you to keep your Bibles open at Galatians chapter 3. Look down at verse 29. Notice what Paul says. And if you are Christ's, if you are in Christ, if you have faith in Christ, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The promises were made, as we've seen, ultimately to Jesus. But we who have faith in Him benefit from all these promises. If we are in Him, these promises pertain to us too, in and through Christ. We get to be a kingdom of priests. We get to be part of a great nation. We get to be adopted by the one with the great name who brings us into his family. And we get to dwell eternally, not just in Canaan, but in the new heavens and the new earth. We get to dwell in the true promised land, which is rest from our enemies in Christ, who is our rest. In Christ, we get rest from sin and rest from death. We get peace on every side and we get life eternal in the whole of the new creation. Brothers and sisters, I can't begin to tell you how good these promises are. And they are yours in Christ. And did you see from Galatians 3 how it is these promises come to us? How it is they came to the Lord Jesus? Look with me again at Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Isn't that astounding? So that Christ could be the recipient of the promises ultimately made to him. 
so that Christ could offer the perfect covenant faithfulness and obedience to God that God required. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham could come to us. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. Becoming a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that we, brothers and sisters, could experience these indescribable blessings that we've been talking about today. Christ willingly underwent our cursing. It is the cursing that we deserved, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Because we were people who dishonored the promised seed of Abraham, it was our cursing. We dishonored Christ with our disbelief in him. We dishonored him with our sinful, proud, stubborn rebellion. We dishonored Christ by not worshiping him, by worshiping ourselves and our own way. We dishonored Christ by treasuring sin and by treasuring this world instead of treasuring him. We dishonored Christ, and as a result, we stood deserving of nothing but cursedness from God forever. But to redeem us, Christ, the only one who ever lived a life that deserved nothing but blessing from God, Christ became a curse for us when he died on the cross, bearing our sin, receiving in his body punishment for our sins from the Father, pouring out his blood for our cleansing and our forgiveness. He was cursed for us so that the blessings promised to Abraham might come to us through him. And so as we think about how to apply these things, my brother and sister, I wonder if you're living like you believe that these promises apply to you. Now, I'm not asking you if you intellectually believe these promises apply to you. I'm asking a different question. I'm asking if you're living like you believe these promises apply to you. Let me give you some ways that you might think about that. How often do you think on these blessings we've talked about today that are yours in Christ? How often when you see that you have a worried heart or an angry heart or an unforgiving, embittered heart or a depressed, or discontented heart, how often do you minister to yourself in those times by reminding yourself that you have, by faith in Christ, become part of a great nation, a nation that is a kingdom of priests, who's going to exercise dominion over this restored universe with Christ in peace and love and joy eternally. Do you think on these blessings? They've already begun to be yours now. You are blessed in Christ with forgiveness of sins and eternal life and reconciliation with God and fellowship with the Father through the Son. Now, the Father's love and the Son's love and the Spirit as your helper and your comforter, that's all yours now. And so, brother and sister, I'm asking, do you live like you believe these promises are true by comforting your troubled heart and mind with a reminder of these blessings? Do you find yourself tempted to try and make your name great? 
instead of resting in the truth that you've been placed in the one who has been given the name that is above every name. Is your focus more on making your name great at work? You know what's tricky? You can be tempted to to try and make your name great at church. Are you tempted to try and make your name great at school, or on your team, among your friends? I think any of the ways that we are trying to make our own name great betrays that we need to grow in believing these promises and how good they are, that we don't have to worry about making our name great. We're in the one whose name is great. Is your heart and your mind characterized by rest and peace. That's part of what it means, as it turns out, for the Lord to promise to Abraham and to his seed land. Yes, it's ultimately going to mean the whole of the new creation, but it also means rest from enemies, as we've talked about. It means the rest that comes from victory, the rest of peace all around. We're going to know that fully in eternity, but we've begun to know it now. Because we've been placed in the one who is the prince of peace, the one who is himself our rest, our rest from sin, our rest from death, our rest from trying to merit favor with God by our own works, a fruitless endeavor if ever there was one. And so do you minister that truth to your troubled, addled heart and mind that you already have begun to have rest and peace in Christ? Is it rare that you find yourself thinking on eternity when you're going to know and experience all these promises in full? Or is it the here and now that occupies your vision and occupies your mind? Do you rarely find yourself longing and praying for Christ's return? If that's you, brother and sister, repent from that and begin reading from the scriptures and meditating on the things that are true when all of these blessings are going to be yours eternally and completely in Christ. These promises do apply to you who are in Christ. And they are so good that they really do affect everything about your every day. If you'll think on them and meditate on how you've already begun by faith in Jesus to know and experience these promised blessings made to Christ that you experience because you're in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. My goodness, give us strength to apprehend something of the wonder of these promises you've made to Abraham and to Abraham's offspring who is Christ. And we who likewise are Abraham's offspring because of faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be encouraged by these things, to think on them, and to pray for the day when you'll send your Son and consummate all of these blessings. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.